This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Seven information operations used during the Russia-Ukraine war and the story you'll be hearing about all week. You're listening to the Propaganda Report podcast. I'm Brad Binkley. I'm actually out of town for the next few days, so some of what I post will be pre-recorded, more evergreen-type material mixed with what I see in the news while I am out. Today's top story is something that, as I mentioned, you are likely to hear about in the news all week, which is the January 6th committee's hearing that's happening this upcoming Thursday, a hearing that is designed to, among other things, make the subject of voter fraud in the 2020 election an even more off-limits topic leading up to the 2022 midterms. This hearing, which will be June 9th, Thursday, it's different from the previous January 6th hearings because this one is going to be airing during prime time. That's right. They scheduled the hearing for 8 p.m., the primetime viewing hours of major news networks, where viewership is the highest, and the major media networks and websites have already begun hyping this event that they hope will capture the public mind. And it's sure to be an interesting study in how the propaganda machine operates or hopes to operate anyway. It is worth noting that the committee is comprised of nine people, seven of which are Democrats, two Republicans, with both Republicans having been censured by the RNC and that Pelosi rejected the two GOP picks for the inquiry in the beginning when this whole thing started. So it's not exactly going to be the, the bipartisan committee that the media hype will lead you to believe that it is. Here is what they will be doing at this primetime hearing, according to the committee, they will be presenting previously unseen material documenting January 6th. They will receive witness testimony. They will preview hearings and they will provide the American people with a summary of its findings about the coordinated multi-step effort to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election and prevent the transfer of power. This is a, a quote from the committee itself. That's what we're going to be witnessing is this dramatized story that was just surmised right there. Additional details regarding who the witnesses are will be released later this week. Of course, they can't release that all right away because they want to tease this story out the whole week to try and get people hyped up and get them planning on watching it by the time that Thursday rolls around. They have to convince the public that this is the best thing that'll be on TV that night, which is hard to do when we all have streaming services and we can watch anything we want at any time. So really, they're going to have to convince people that it's better than anything that they can stream. I'm surprised that they haven't partnered with all of those streaming services to have all of the other programming, streaming programming, blocked so that people have no choice but watch the hearing if they are going to choose to watch something Although the choice would then be to turn off your screen, which I think a lot of people would end up doing. The hearing will apparently be the first of nine planned hearings. Nine. Committee member Jamie Raskin, Democrat, said that the committee divided it up into nine chapters that will allow for the unfolding of the narrative. The unfolding of the narrative. So this will be treated like a nine-part miniseries to dramatize the events of January 6th 
in the form of a narrative, a story that they are telling. With that said, I want to bring back a couple of quotes about narrative warfare, because that's exactly what's going on here. These quotes from a woman named Ajit Mon, who has written multiple books on narrative warfare, how to do it, instructional books, manuals for people in the intelligence industry. And these quotes coming directly from an article on foreignpolicy.com, the globalist website. The title of the article is actually, Narratives are about meaning, not truth. Narratives do not rely upon truth value for their success. The narrative lies in the assignment of motivation and meaning to all the events that support the title. In this case, the title is going to be the January 6th hearings, I guess, something like that, some form of that anyway. And they will be assigning the meaning in the narrative that they tell about all these events, the videos they select, the interviews and quotes they select from documents and whatever. They have thousands of interviews, thousands of documents, thousands of videos, thousands of everything, apparently more than any one person could ever go through. And they're going to pick and select the right ones to construct the narrative that has the meaning that they want to project onto the audiences that they are targeting. She goes on to say in this foreign policy article, narrative is like poetry. It doesn't make sense to say a poem is untrue or inaccurate. Truth is irrelevant to poetry. What is relevant is that it strikes a chord in experience. The same is true of narrative. That's an interesting statement there. It's irrelevant in poetry and it's irrelevant in narrative. And that is the way that these people think. And that is the way they're thinking when they're constructing this narrative. They're not telling the story to try and give the people watching or listening objective facts so that they can then think about them, critically think about them and question them themselves. Because you have to remember, at the heart of this is the 2020 election and questions about it being stolen, the big lie, as they call it. So when you watch this hearing, either you side with the people telling the story, constructing the narrative, or you're a Nazi. That's basically how they're framing it. You either side with the people telling the narrative, or you go along with the big lie. So there is no choice here in watching and coming to a conclusion about what you're going to see on Thursday even though they might present it as such, there is no acceptable alternative other than the conclusion that they have already told you you are to come to. And the fact that they're talking about it striking a chord in the experience, and that's exactly what this is designed to do, in my opinion, is they are trying to strike a chord in the relevant audiences, which is the people who they need to get up and vote and the people who they want to oppose. This is a divide and conquer thing, in my opinion. I don't think this is going to move the needle, this hearing, on anybody who is on the fence. So what this is more likely to do is activate people, make them pull out their money and donate money more for certain campaigns on both sides, on the left and right, and it's going to further polarize America leading up to the election. It's going to make the left and right hate each other even more. So this is going to do nothing but further tear people apart. That is if people watch it, which I think is a big if in this case. Although we will get flooded in our social media with it. So it will be inescapable if we are online at all because it will be the thing that trends on top of social media, little sound bites, we'll, we'll hear all those, then we'll hear the Twitter, we'll have the, it's not a news article, but the little summaries that they have in the news sections of the trending labels. So we will see it there, regardless if we are online at all. She also says, 
Another interesting little quote here. Credibility, not truth, is an important aspect of narrative influence. In order to assure credibility, the narrator needs to be viewed as credible. That means it would be most effective if the narrator is in the target group. If it's not possible, the narrator should be shared by civilians rather than state or military representatives. The narrative itself, in order to be received as credible, must reflect the experiences of the audience. So what this tells me is that we're going to see... TikTok influencers, Twitter influencers, influencers on every social media network, YouTube also, sharing bite-sized clips and then giving their definitive conclusions about how this proves guilt about something, about Trump's role in it, that he caused it, that he chased Mike Pence down a hallway himself, maybe, whatever. We will see these little clips given out to these various influencers who people are most persuaded by. And that will be where we're flooded with this information by. All right, so this is going to be a narrative warfare event. And as I said, it's going to be an interesting study in the propaganda machine, how it attempts to operate, how it makes adjustments, how it disseminates information. Does that mean that there's going to be nothing that's the truth that's told in this? Of course not. Propagandists have to tell some truths if they are going to sell the lie in a believable way. A truth out of context leaves the impression of a lie. What do they want from this hearing? Well, obviously, they want to drill home that the subject of election fraud in 2020 is off limits. I told you about our videos getting removed, year-old videos of us talking with Garland Favorito and him simply laying out discrepancies in the vote count, which nobody has disagreed with. Only the explanation has been disagreements on. The left says it's just a mistake. The right says it's evidence of widespread voter fraud. We've had those videos removed, and then we've gotten strikes on our channel in the past couple of weeks, and these are old videos. So they are trying to snuff out any conversation about this stuff as we get closer to 2022, the elections. They also want people to demand that Trump be criminally prosecuted, and they also want to make people afraid to vote for any of the Trump-backed candidates in 2022, and really they want to just stir up more fighting between the left and right. They really love to amp up the division and the hate amongst people who are on opposite sides when it comes to politics as we get closer to elections. They want to activate people. They want to get them off the couch to increase those voting numbers. It's really like a big get-out-the-vote thing. A lot of this stuff is just used as giant get-out-the-vote efforts. And they also apparently want some legislation in the future, as Congresswoman and member of the committee said, what's her name? Zoe Lofgren, that's her name. She said, the public needs to understand the stakes for our system of government, and we need to devise potential changes in legislation or procedures to protect ourselves in the future. Now, I speculate that that legislation or that legislation that could be presented after this is going to be domestic terrorism type legislation that online activity they already have domestic terrorism strategy from biden that he, he posted the strategy was it last year maybe or earlier this year i don't remember exactly when it came out that targets domestic terrorists and it, a lot of it links to what you say on social media and if you talk about elections so if you talk about conspiracies you talk about you don't like mask mandates, you don't like mask, or you think maybe the 2020 election or wasn't the most honest election ever, then you could be classified as someone who they can investigate without having any evidence of actual wrongdoing. And I think they could be looking for some more legislation to build on that, to make it even more easier to do stuff like that based simply on what you believe. 
I don't know that they will succeed in that. I think they probably will not because I think this whole thing is going to be a clown show, personally. It's just hard to take these things seriously with the way that they roll them out. It's already being hyped by the media. They're already telling us how interesting it's going to be and that we should tune in and how shocking it's going to be. And there's going to be surprise witnesses you know, teasing it out like that, telling us what to conclude already, how we should feel about it already. And they're airing it in prime time, which I guess not enough people called in sick to work to, to watch the daytime hearing last time they had one of these. So they're going to work around our schedule this time. That is really pretty ridiculous that they're doing this thing for the news shows. Like literally they're holding this hearing at night like it's a football game or like it's the World Series so that it can air in prime time and maximize that audience. And on top of all of that, it's also ridiculous because it's happening just a week after what is officially recognized as the 50th anniversary of the Watergate break-in. January 1st, or excuse me, June 1st is when that was, according to the National Archives. And when it comes to Watergate, we all know what the media's favorite pastime is to do with Trump. It's to compare him to Nixon. They love doing, they would literally do that all day, every day, if they could maintain a viewership doing it. And who better to make these Trump-Nixon comparisons than Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, who combined must be 700 years old at this point. And this is exactly what we have already seen today as both of these fools were guests on Reliable Sources, the most unreliable source on television, hosted by Brian Stelter. This morning, Stelter had these two men on to speak about not a new book that they wrote, but a new foreword that they wrote for an old book of theirs about Watergate that was written in 1974, All the President's Men. These charlatans wrote a foreword for their 48-year-old book about Nixon that's all about Trump and the 2020 election. I I am not, I am dead serious. They wrote a foreword for that book that is about how Trump is worse than Richard Nixon. Here's here's one of the quotes from the foreword, from the foreword. It says, Donald Trump not only sought to destroy the electoral system through false claims of voter fraud and unprecedented public intimidation of state election officials, but he also then attempted to prevent the peaceful transfer of power to his duly elected successor for the first time in American history. This has been inserted into a 48-year-old book about Richard Nixon and Watergate. And the state election official that they say that he intimidated, that they're referring to there, is Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, who is an absolute fraud. I've talked about him a ton in past shows. I'm sure you've heard it before. The dude's a fraud. There's no doubt about it. Here's what Bernstein had to say on Stelter's show about what both Nixon and Trump were driven by and how Trump is worse than even Nixon. One of the interesting things is where the hate took each of them and a level of criminality such as we had never seen in the White House 50 years ago. Mm. And now we see again through that hate, the piston of hate, a level of criminality in Trump's White House, perhaps even exceeding Nixon's. And then we see this essential difference as to where the hate and the actual abuse of power goes. And that is Trump goes to be the first seditious president of the United States, not just a criminal president like Nixon, the first seditious president of the United States. They define in their new forward that sedition is when the people rebel 
or inciting the people to rebel against the governing authority of the state. Trump was currently president at that time, so he was seditious against himself. This hearing is going to focus on Georgia and the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger. I guarantee it. That is going to be their, quote, smoking gun, the phone call between Trump and Raffensperger, where he said, find me 11,000 votes or whatever it was he said. The way that he was talking about it, he was not saying, go steal me 11,000 votes. He was saying, find ones that they believed were stolen. So find the ones that were fraudulently counted. Yet they're going to frame this as only one way to interpret that, and it's an evil way to interpret it. And if anybody has caused people to hate or driven people to be fueled by hate, then it's these guys. It's people like Woodward and Bernstein and Brian Stelter, whose propaganda over the past six years, their brainwashing program operation, has literally driven people mad and caused people to be filled with rage at the sight of Trump. The orange man bad syndrome. They have caused that. They have blood on their hands. Here's Bernstein telling us what both Trump and Nixon did in their, quote, crimes. The important thing to look at both Nixon and Trump, both their crimes began with undermining the most basic element of democracy, free and fair elections. Both set out to undermine that system for their own political, personal ends. Um, There's a lot more about this tonight in Watergate Blueprint for a Scandal that premieres here on CNN at 9 p.m. Eastern time tonight. The first two episodes this week, the remaining two episodes next week. Is that not exactly what Bernstein is doing here, seeking to undermine free and fair elections for his own, at least personal ends, maybe not personal political ends, kind of. Is he not selling an old book from 1974 with a ridiculous new forward in it? He's literally going on a promotional tour with his buddy, Woodward, trying to make money off of this book from 1974 by adding a new little twist to it. And then Stelter, not to be outdone, The charlatan himself follows that up with an advertisement for CNN's docudrama or whatever it is. Blueprint for a scandal to carry out the Nixon-Trump parallels. How many times are we going to hear the word Nixon said during these Trump hearings, I wonder? They really think they can draw upon that history and motivate people and activate people. I, I, I think they're just way off base here. I think they're totally missing it. I just don't think people care. I don't think enough people care about this anymore there's obviously certain people are and they're trying to get people to care about it but i guess we'll see how it goes although we did see how everything went with cnn plus it didn't work out too well and this is just another little experiment they're doing that wasn't the only interesting story about cnn today i talked last week about how the media is currently trying to play out some of the main agenda at davos a couple of weeks ago which is rebuilding trust which the agenda was rebuilding trust in these controlling institutions specifically the media so that they can push forward their 2030 agenda essentially and in another attempt i pointed one out last week as well and another attempt at that the new head guy at cnn has announced that cnn will be cutting back its use of breaking news they will not be using that label quite as often anymore what a bold move for the new guy here's brian stelter and the only guest commentator on CNN who is worse than Woodward and Bernstein to tell you all about it. I've been saving one of the best media stories of the week uh, for the end of the hour here. Let's try to do a live, real-time demonstration of this, okay? Look below me, the banner says breaking news, but it's not. 
That's what CNN leadership is trying to fix. Let's change the banner, change the label, so it says developing instead. There we go. That's, that's more accurate. Um, CNN right. CEO Chris Licht said, uh, sent a memo to staffers this week outlining new guidance for using the term breaking news. He said, quote, something I have heard from people both inside and outside the organization is complaints that we overuse the breaking news banner. I agree, he said. It's become such a fixture on every channel and every network that its impact has become lost on the audience. Uh, Licht added, quote, uh, we are truth tellers. Uh, focus on informing, not alarming our viewers. So, Tuba, now the bar for labeling a story breaking news is much higher here on CNN. I think viewers have probably already noticed this change. It's already been happening slowly for the past few weeks. What do you make of it? Well, I, it, look, this is a, this is a, a, a smart change. I, I think our viewers are smart enough to know that we've been promiscuous in using uh, the, this term. You know, our friends over at MSNBC <laughs> sometimes use the use the banner breaking today. Breaking today. What is that? That's just news. Uh, and um, I, I think all of us have been guilty of it. And uh, dialing it back will probably actually wind up generating more attention when there is actual breaking news. Again, bold move by the new guy. Comes in. He's replacing Zucker. Big shoes to fill. Decides to do something controversial right away. Like insist that they cut back on the use of the phrase breaking news. Very, very innovative there. If the word losing its meaning is the concern and they want to use it less so that it's more impactful, then I assume there's going to be another memo instructing anchors at CNN to cut back on their use of words like racist, Nazi, deranged, coup, white supremacist, credibly accused, unfounded, unprecedented, sources say, sources familiar with the president's thinking says, and Tucker Carlson. Really, the list could go on forever. We'll be sure to keep an eye on how well this new label, Developing News, goes. I wonder if they are also going to have to change the tone and dramatic sounding effects that they also throw in. Stelter's guest commentator on that story, you might have recognized his voice, is the only commentator that makes you wish that they'd bring Woodward and Bernstein back out. That is the one and only Jeffrey Tubin, who is fantastic at showing his co-workers his penis, but kind of sucks as a commentator. In fact, if CNN wants to cut back on something that's making them lose credibility after breaking news, how about cutting back on having a guy who not only played with his genitals on camera during a Zoom call with female co-workers on the other line, but also once got his friend's daughter pregnant, after which he tried to threaten her into having an abortion? How about cutting back on having that guy as your legal analyst discussing hashtag MeToo-related cases, which is exactly the main reason why Stelter had him on the show today, which was to discuss the Johnny Depp-Amber Heard trial outcome. The so-called trial by TikTok between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard concluded on Wednesday. And I'm wondering if anybody actually prevailed in this. And yes, Depp uh, won a legal victory over Heard, but feels like everybody lost as a result of all the hate and venom that was stirred up on social media as a result of this. Let's bring in CNN chief legal analyst and former federal prosecutor Jeffrey Tubin. Um, Tubin, was, was there any winner for the, in, in, this, in this trial? Well, I think Johnny Depp won temporarily, but the big losers here were uh, women who've been the victims of domestic violence who um, are going to be shy, more shy to come forward. But I think the press and the First Amendment is a tremendous loser here. You know, the idea that you could get 10 million dollars for a story that was true. 
that's a very chilling message to the press because, I mean, if you look at what was actually said in um, Amber Heard's article, it's never been really disputed. The judge let that case get totally out of control and turn into a contest between like who's a worse person. But that story was true. And I think this this verdict is going to be overturned on appeal. But the message to the press has been a dark one here, I think. A dark one. And what kind of message is it when a story like that is being discussed by Jeffrey Tubin? All right, moving on. I want to talk now about seven information operations used by Russia in Ukraine. This is according to an article that's being promoted by the World Economic Forum and has been posted on a company called Active Fences website. Now, they're promoting the World Economic Forum as promoting this company as a disinformation expert. Now, they're a company that provides tools to social media platforms to help them remove harmful content using AI-powered detection. This company was founded by an Israeli defense intel guy who specialized in psychological warfare. His name is E.L. Dykin. They premise the article by saying that trust and safety teams of social media platforms must protect their platforms from being a tool of warfare. So in that spirit, they then give those top seven info operations that they, Act Defense, have detected being used by Russia in Ukraine. That is a key point of emphasis there. Here are the seven. Number one, recruitment. Calls enlisting military personnel are a frequent activity seen across multiple platforms. Combat soldiers, volunteers, and cyber experts are recruited to join in Russia's effort online or on the battlefield. Pro-Russian online groups are recruited for specific units in the Russian army itself. That is interesting to me that they consider that to be a Russian tactic because I could have sworn that when this whole thing started in Ukraine that I saw endless amounts of news stories in our mainstream media glorifying all the non-Ukrainians who went over to fight alongside of the Ukrainian army. They glorified the MSNBC journalist who very dramatically said he was done talking while posing with a gun on camera, said he was joining the fight. Or any of the other number of stories about the old people trying to enlist on the side of Ukraine and fight because they just hated Russia so much and they were so, so driven to protect democracy in Ukraine and worldwide. All of this seemed to me to be like recruitment tactics, encouraging others to do the same, but I guess maybe I just don't understand the difference. Next, in the recruitment department, the article continues on. It says... Calls for cyber experts skilled in hacking, pen testing, spamming, and other cyber activities are recurring on platforms ranging from social media platforms to payment messaging platforms. That's really interesting because Hillary Clinton herself literally, among others, publicly called on private citizens to conduct cyber attacks on the Russian government. There were reports overnight that uh, Anonymous, uh, a group of hackers, took down Russian uh, TV. Uh, I think that, you know, people who love freedom, people who understand that, you know, our way of life depends upon uh, supporting uh, those who believe in freedom as well, could be engaged in uh, cyber uh, support for uh, those in the streets in Russia. We did some of that during uh, the Arab Spring when I was Secretary of State. I think we could be also attacking a lot of the 
uh, government institutions and uh, again the oligarchs and their uh, you know their way of life through cyber attacks and it will be difficult to get actual physical support but I think we should be looking at that I mean the old days of you know radio free Europe and getting and beaming in uh, accurate information into the homes of Russians we should be doing everything we can now online to replicate that it will be very difficult for Putin to plug all the holes in that dike. Information going into uh, Russia about what Putin is actually doing with this unprovoked attack on Ukraine can keep people, you know, energized. And I think that's something that we should be doing, as I say, both through our government, but also individuals who have the capacity to do that. Our tech companies should not be aiding Russia in this attack in any way. They should be aiding those who are standing for freedom, which after all, is something that, uh, you know, they're supposed to be on the side of. I'm not even going to comment on the plug the holes statement that she made, because the point is that she is doing exactly what this active fence says that only the Russians do. Only the Russians do this. Still in number one on the first info tactic that they've identified, it goes on to say that some Russian disinformation entities have also organized into a coalition to promote Russia's image and spread disinformation, and to that effect have also publicized calls for volunteers with relevant film, social media, and other skill sets. Zelensky literally gave a virtual address at the Grammys. SNL, every late night show, promotes Ukraine's image on a nightly basis. So after all of this and the first info op that they identified, you get to the very end of the sentence in this article, and it says at the end of the recruiting method, it says this, Ukraine actors are actively recruiting online as well. However, these are generally viewed as legitimate. They literally premise this list by saying that these are things that Russia is doing to Ukraine. And then they ended it by saying, oh yeah, Ukraine's also doing it. It's just legitimate when they do it. They made this entire list to tell social media platforms what to remove. Here, notice these things so that you can remove them. Really, all they needed to say was remove the pro-Russian stuff, keep the pro-Ukraine stuff. That's all they had to say. It could have simplified that entire paragraph. And this is promoted by the World Economic Forum. This is not critical thought. Number two, fundraising. Oh, jeez. Funding messages for the Russian military is surfacing across platforms. These operations provide methods of donation for military purposes, including credit cards, cryptocurrencies, and wire transfers, while providing bank account details. Known disinformation actors have been active in these efforts. We literally send billions of dollars and weapons to Ukraine like every other day. And they want us to send more. If we don't send more, we'll probably start being accused of siding with Russia. Number three, doxing. Yeah, that's a Russian tactic. Only Russians dox, apparently. It says, doxing or publicizing identifiable information about an individual or organization is currently being detected across multiple online channels. By sharing this private information, threat actors encourage harassment and even physical violence against Ukraine soldiers, journalists, activists, and cybersecurity personnel. Okay, so obviously... There's doxing that goes on on every side of the political spectrum. However, the doxing of those who don't go along with the mainstream narrative about this and other things seems to be encouraged by our media. In fact, there's a story in the news a couple of days ago, and this is like a recurring story. 
also appears on the World Economic Forum website. They cite this guy a number of times, a guy who is involved in the story, is a story about a form of doxing of companies, I would say. It's a list of U.S. companies who are still doing business in Russia. Listen to how this article frames is framed by CBS. 27 U.S.-based companies are defying calls to exit or curtail their activities in Russia, according to a running tally by Yale University management professor Jeffrey Sonnenfield and his research team. This guy is in the news all the time. He's been tracking what decisions companies have made in regards to doing business with Russia since the war started. He gives them grades, and his list is frequently cited by everyone in the media, and it's used to shame and pressure these companies to get out of Russia. He gives D and F grades to those who he thinks are doing the wrong thing. And then these shame lists are spread around social media for the purpose of mobilizing these social media mobs and getting them to harass these companies digitally, to boycott them, or perhaps even go protest them physically in the real world. This is doxing, and it's not only promoted by the mainstream media, by this guy Sonnenfield, it's promoted by the World Economic Forum. So this doxing is happening everywhere. There's these groups on Twitter also called Grab Your Wallet and Sleeping Giants, which actually dox everyday people who aren't even public figures or big corporations if they hold positions that these people disagree with. They try to get them to lose their job, to get their funding to certain things cut off. It's horrible, but that's the way they operate, and it's good to know how they operate. It's good to know what they're identifying the others do, because that is also what they themselves do. And the more that we can recognize those, the more that we can see it ourselves. We don't have to rely on anything that they say to determine what we perceive to be the truth or not. So we can do it ourselves. And their systems are going to fail at this. They're being exposed more and more by the day. And they're recognizing, if you watch them at Davos, that they're kind of their goals or world domination plans are kind of falling apart. And I think that this increased intensity of propaganda, this onslaught that they're hitting people with, is evidence of that. I mean, it's becoming so blatant. I know there's a numbing down effect that comes to that too, but I think most people are seeing through it, especially when you talk to people in one-on-one conversation. Okay, so I'm going to go through four through seven on that list of info ops at this World Economic Forum group promoted. And I'm also going to go through a rare admission from a progressive organization that admitted that the very experts on disinfo that they had been citing are actually the ones who are spreading disinfo. I mean, it really is a a rare admission. And if you want access to that XR content, you can get that through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash propaganda report. Also check out all of our tiers there. Every tier gets access to that XR content that we drop every time we drop a DMB. And check out the other tiers as well to see which ones that you like the best. Thank you for listening. And we will talk to you all next time. Have a great rest of your day.